Hey everyone, we want to welcome you to the Floater Founder Podcast. This is a Toronto-based podcast featuring local founders across all markets. We are your hosts, Samantha Lloyd and Lyson Casey. We are going to be bringing you interviews with exciting and hardworking founders. They will be sharing their experience creating and leading a company. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, you're here with Floater Founder. I'm your host, Samantha Lloyd, here with my co-host, Liza and Casey. Hello everyone. And today we are super excited. We have the pleasure of interviewing Jody Ekowitz. She is the founder and CEO of Boulevard PR right here in Toronto. So thank you so much for organizing this and you also helped organize Jody Kovitz. So big thank you to you for that. And thank you for having me. My pleasure to do this. And so tell us what is Boulevard PR? So Boulevard PR is the PR agency that I started 18 years ago. Kind of crazy to think that it's been that long. And we're focused on providing PR services, basically fully integrated communication services, um, focused primarily on B2B technology. And we work with startups, uh, emerging growth companies, and VC firms. Very cool. And where is the gap in those B2B tech companies where they weren't doing proper PR? So I think, you know, it's a really, it's a really good question. I think B2B PR is, it's kind of interesting. When you speak with media, they're like, it's a B2B company, it's kind of boring, you know, there's not a lot going on right now, or, you know, not much that they can do with it. And so I think people have really sort of come a long way from a, a founder or a startup perspective in looking at how can they actually make their product something that people will be interested in how can they promote it in different ways using different channels that their audiences are in and I think with social media today it's actually it's really interesting because before you would have just these traditional channels that you would go through but now even though you're trying to reach let's say a you know a b2b audience of you know maybe it's somebody that's a uh, technology professional in the airline industry. They're also people. They they engage in different channels that allow them to personally grow. And actually, there's a great way now that uh, B2B companies are actually communicating with them through those channels that they're there for themselves as well as for their businesses. So I think that's, that's been a good opportunity for them. Cool. And h- how do you go about making all these relationships with reporters and other people in the industry to help you promote your product? Is it just because you've been doing it for over 18 years or is there other tips and tricks? Out there? You know, a lot of the time we start working with a company and, and I'll give you the example of a client of ours that we've actually been working with for 15 years and they happen to be a, in the airline technology space. When we first started working with them, I didn't even know what the space was about. I had no idea about the technology, the power to anything. And of course, that meant that I had no idea who the media were in that space. And the same applies to a lot of the companies that we work with. You know, for example, we may work with an AI company who's primarily focused on mining or um, some kind of industry, whereas another AI company might be focused on sales or retail. So when you kind of look at sort of, even though they're in the same space, there's so much difference between what they're doing and so for us we often come into a client where we have no clue who the media are and so what we do is we we subscribe obviously to technology services like such as Cision and we'll do some research just to give us a little bit of foundation as to who the media are we do the research 
Um, we'll pull together a, a baseline list. We actually go and take a look to see who those media are. And then we start to actually dig in and research. What are they writing about? Um, what are they doing on social media? And then we actually reach out to them. And one of the things I, I find in building a relationship with a reporter um, is actually to engage with them long before you need them. Unfortunately, what happens is a lot of companies will actually go out there and they'll say, oh, I've got a press release coming out next week. You know, can we send it out to everybody? And, you know, this might be the first time that they're actually engaging with media. It's the wrong way to go about it. You know, take a look at what they're doing. Find out what they're working on. How can you help them? And so in building those relationships, I mean, you know, even when it comes to dealing with a lot of the mainstream media, whether it's the trades, you know, we like to be able to offer, you know, the the connections that we have you know they may be looking for a source for a particular story that they don't have you know I don't care if they're not a client of mine if I can help a reporter do something that makes their job easier that helps me not only you know just in terms of building a relationship with them but also shows the reporter that there is some trust it's a give and take relationship it's not just about me pushing things out in one way. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that it's all about relationship building, um, but it's definitely difficult. How did you start this 18 years ago? So it was very interesting. I started my business really at the, at the most craziest time. It was the dot-com crash. I was working in-house. I'd only actually ever worked in-house at technology companies. Um, this was a great company. Weird, you know, I started, I was one of the first 20 people, went up to about seven, 800 people, went public and then the bottom fell out of the market. And just like all the other companies that struggled, you know, ours was a company that did the same thing. So I was actually pregnant with my daughter at the time and realized that I was already showing, you know, even though people can't, you know, um, judge you based on, you know, the fact that you're pregnant, the reality is they don't want to hire somebody who's going to be going on maternity leave, you know, a few months after you start working with them. So I thought, you know, this is a great time for me to actually start doing consulting. It's something I had on my radar and sort of part of my sort of career vision, but two years out. So I said, okay, I'm going to start the business. And what I did is I actually used about a, a month to network and just connect with other people. And when I started the business, it was just me on my own. You know, um, thankfully somebody that I worked with in-house at this company that pretty much shut down uh, was joining a new company and she was the very first person that gave me a chance. You know, she understood and knew what I was able to do and she brought me in as really uh, my first client. And it's just grown from then. That's so great, that's really cool. Yeah, so you probably have to keep in contact with so many people and companies and relationships. And how do you keep it all together? How do you stay organized? You know, I actually don't necessarily have a great answer for that, except for the fact that I think I have undiagnosed ADHD. Both my kids have ADHD. And uh, when, the, when my uh, daughter was diagnosed, the pediatrician said to me, so is it you or your husband that has ADHD? Because it is familial. Mm -hmm. And we looked at each other and it's like, it's most likely me. And quite honestly, I use it. It's, it's a superpower for me. You know, it just enables me to connect, to work with my team. And I have a team of 20. Um, they're, all, um, they're all dispersed geographically. And um, 
I think it just allows me to do that. So, you know, but there's a lot of different ways, you know, to connect. I just know what needs to be done and it just happens automatically. You know, I don't think most people are able to do that. So truly it's my guess is that it it has something to do with, you know, having undiagnosed ADHD. It's very good though that it uh, creates a benefit for you in managing what's a like huge client roster and everything like that. Um, And also for managing remote employees, managing an entire remote team, what is that like? And what are the benefits that you would say are of having an all remote team? So when so probably about two years into my business, I'd made a conscious decision to actually set it up as a completely virtual agency. That was sort of the first time that I brought somebody on board. And I thought, you know, I really don't want to have the overhead of having an office and also having gone through this whole dot-com crash. I saw about how many people, I saw how many people were actually laid off and ended up being out of jobs. And I'm like, what happens if I start to grow this thing and people come on board and then the market crashes again, you're gonna have all these people that are out of a job. So I made a conscious decision that I would actually set things up from a virtual perspective. And there was a few things that I looked at that I think to me were more important than location. Uh, One was having experience. If I was gonna do this, as a completely virtual PR agency, I didn't want to have to manage people. I'm not a, my, my expertise in pub, is in public relations, not in managing people or HR. And so in order to have uh, a network of remote people, they needed to be able to manage themselves. And so in order to do that, you can't hire anyone who is junior. So everybody on my team has a minimum of 10 years of experience. Um, it's good and bad in that, Um, I don't really have the opportunity to mentor people that are just coming out of university. So that is the downside. But the upside is because we work so much with startups, um, my team is so experienced that literally we can hit the ground running. There's no training. They're not paying to actually train somebody on my team. And so from that perspective, it's great. The other thing that's really good is now the technology is at the point where it doesn't matter um, if somebody's based in, you know, a remote part of, you know, Canada or as one of my consultants lives on a boat in the Florida Keys. It's, it's, it's irrelevant, right? The fact is that you have somebody that has the expertise that I need, that our clients need, and location truly because of technology is no longer relevant. You know, I don't have to actually have an office where somebody, you know, comes in every day. The other advantage is I think about the time that I save not having to commute. You know, I always talk about my 10 second commute, you know, 10 seconds or 10 steps from from my bedroom to my office and I'm ready to to get the day started. And I think the same applies for my team. The other thing is I have uh, I have two kids and my oldest is 22 and they're on the autism spectrum. And so when they were in grade three, I think I spent more time at their school than I did actually working. And it was very interesting because if I was actually, firstly, if I was hired full time, I probably would have been fired. And second, if I was working in an office, I'd be very absent. Whereas here, I was just really set up in such a way that I could manage things, work with my team and still provide, you know, my kid with the support that they needed. So so there's lots of advantages in, in that area. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. The work-life balance is unbeatable. Do you have advice for companies who are considering uh, starting an all-remote team? So I would definitely say it's the way to go. 
Um, in fact, I always have a good chuckle because there's a lot of PR agencies that, let's say, in the last year have like been promoting, oh, we're now, you know, we allow remote work and we're a distributed team. And I'm like, we've been doing this for 18 years, you know, congrats for catching up. But I think I think there's so many advantages. I think reducing the stress of a commute, um, allowing you to hire based on expertise and, and experience um, rather than sort of looking for somebody in a particular location. And in fact, even just hiring hiring for B2B tech in Canada um, from a PR perspective is tough. You know, that's why my team is very much split between the U.S. and Canada, because there's not a lot of independent consultants here in Canada that are focused on B2B technology. So I would say if you're in the kind of business that uh, allows you to work remote and not every business will allow that, then I would say, you know, do it. And maybe if it doesn't work for you 100 percent of the time, give the opportunity for your team to actually work remotely. And if you trust your team enough to do the work that has to be done, you know, whether they're in an office or doing it at home, you know, that work should be completed anyway. That's the kind of relationship you need with your employees anyway. Yes, exactly. Amazing. Um, so let's say it's, it's early in the I run my own company. It's early in the morning. I open my email and I see that everything's on fire. Um, how would you say is what's the best way to handle uh, a crisis or bad press around your startup? Well, so the first thing is most startups and actually companies in general tend to react when they have a crisis. So few actually plan for a crisis. So the very first thing that you need to do is make sure that you actually have a crisis plan in place. And, you know, we've been very fortunate. We haven't had to deal with a lot of crises um, for our clients. And we actually have somebody who is a consultant who does a lot of that work specifically. That's kind of their their prime work. And so we work with them to actually develop plans for our clients um, that says, you know, here are the possible things that could happen. You know, how are we going to manage that? And it covers everything from employee communication, media communication, um, how are you going to do things publicly, you know, in terms of social media, what kind of message are you going to share? Um, how do you escalate something? Because not every crisis is something that requires communication. There's going to be crises that are completely out of your control where you can't even communicate, you know. So, for example, like we even have our clients in Miami where you have hurricanes, you know, that's a crisis, but it's it's a different kind of crisis, but there's stuff that we can plan. So they they have to make sure, obviously, that from an operations perspective, that everything is up and running. But from a communication perspective, you know, we can track a hurricane coming in, for example, and start the communication ahead of time to say that this is on track. There is a chance that there may be power outages. But obviously, if, if something happens on the day and you don't have a plan in place, I would say the biggest thing that you can do is not react. Um, as much as it's a crisis and you feel like you have to do something right there and then, if you react, it's going to be the biggest mistake that you make. So I would say take the time to sit with your team, sit with your your communications folks um, and figure out what your strategy is if you don't already have one in place and then sort of plan from there. Um, because when you react to things, it's that's the time when when uh, when decisions are bad decisions are made. And when when things turn out, sort of, uh, that can really impact you in the long term. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. That's great advice. I would probably be the reactor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and to kind of like on the other side of the spectrum, let's say your company just accomplished something amazing. How do you make sure that the thing that you just did has the largest impact possible? 
Well, I think, you know, um, Jenny Dietrich, who is, uh, she's also in, in public relations and does a lot of great work actually in the PR community as well. She created a model uh, called the PESO model, P-E-S-O, and it stands for paid, earned, shared, and owned. And so when you think about public relations today and, and the opportunity, it might be a great one in terms of a speaking engagement. It might be a great article. That's it. You have to kind of think about what are the different elements that kind of form within within the PESO model? So from a paid perspective, you know, let's say you land a great a great article in, I'm not going to use the Wall Street Journal because the problem is that it requires a subscription, but let's say in your, your favorite magazine, maybe it's Forbes, whatever it is, it's a great article. Are there perhaps paid channels that you can actually use to help amplify that? You know, is there a way that you can go out there and make sure that the biggest audience is going to see it? So for example using, you know, sharing through, so on the shared side, you know, maybe going through social media, but also amplifying that through paid social media. Um, obviously, the earned side would be the article that that uh, um, that you might see. And then your own side of things might be actually writing a bit of a blog post, maybe about your, your journey leading up to that particular article, and then sharing a link back to the article. Um, so there's a number of different ways. If you kind of look at communication in general as an integrated approach and you take a look at everything that happens, whether you're speaking at an event or if you're getting an article published, how do you take that integrated approach to actually com- communicating um, and getting the word out there? So paid, earned, shared, owned. Look at the various channels and give credit where it's due. That's the main thing. A lot of companies will actually share content. The other thing, um, sorry, they'll share content and um, what they won't end up doing is giving credit to the writer. You know, you want to build relationships with the reporter. Acknowledge them and the great work that they did in in writing the piece that's about you. Um, the other thing that you can do in terms of amplifying it, uh, LinkedIn, for example, especially for B2B channels, is a great place where you can actually go and uh, share a lot of long-form content um, and so, again, if you kind of take what you're doing on your blog, you know, maybe you expand on that and share something through LinkedIn Publisher, again, with a link back to that article. It's another great way to get a much broader audience of people that are already connected to you, but maybe not following you or engaging with you on a day-to-day basis to actually see what you're doing. And um, another thing that you've done, aside from manage remote teams, is also host events that happen internationally. How does that all come together when you're based here in Toronto? So it's very interesting. We actually have one person on our team who's an event specialist. And so that's pretty much all that she does. And so when we've had clients, for example, going to events um, like Mobile World Congress, which takes place in Barcelona, you know, even though we're here, we're doing a lot of the planning and all those elements that can be done ahead of time from here. Um, so we'll, for example, help plan, set up the agreements uh, that are in place. We'll help reach out to sales um, sales targets, you know, who are the customers that they want to go out to, develop a plan to actually engage with them, to bring them into the, into the meeting room, to actually manage being on site. So it's just a matter of sort of knowing everything that needs to be done. And, and quite honestly, again, when you have the right experts on your team, um, it doesn't matter whether where in the world you're actually doing something. If you understand what needs to be done, what the processes are, and the approaches and the approaches that those event organizers are taking to you know to host people, you can work with them in the in the way that they want. And then of course we'll be on site and and manage sort of that flow there and then. Mm-hmm. So yeah. That's awesome. 
you have probably worked with a lot of companies from inception to um, profitability. What would you say are some of the correct things that, that companies are doing and what are also some of the incorrect things? We've worked with a lot of successful companies that have you know, gone on for like eight, nine years and then shut down. And we've gone on with companies that continue today to be highly successful. What we see that's definitely a common theme from a PR perspective is that when you have somebody at the CEO level that's involved and committed to PR is where you're going to have the most success. Those that where the CEO, for example, doesn't want to do interviews, uh, wins an award, doesn't want to show up to receive the award, um, doesn't want to have a conversation with your PR team about the great things that are being done and literally hands it off to somebody that's either a a marketing lead or a junior person, um, that's when you're not going to be successful because you have to have a CEO invested. And so, for example, there are some really great companies where, and, and I'll use Touch Bistro as an example, Um, Alex Baratti, the CEO and founder, and and we've been working with them for about six years now. And he is so invested in everything around PR. Um, He recognizes the opportunity in not only sort of driving success for the business, but in sort of helping to actually elevate his own brand as well. And so he's really committed. Um, He's probably, I'd say, he's definitely one of, I'd say, the top three clients that we've worked with where you can see the impact because of the fact that it's coming from the top down. A lot of time, a lot of time what happens is you'll get somebody who brings, who says, you know, let's find a PR agency, brings them on board. And ultimately what happens is, you know, you're working with somebody, they become a blocker. They're, you know, they kind of stand in your way of actually connecting with anybody in the C-suite, never mind the CEO. And that's, that's a big problem. Find the right opportunities for the C-suite because, and, and there are, there's a lot of CEOs that we work with who would rather give, for example, the profile or the success to somebody else in the company, or they'd rather shine a light on their customers. And that's absolutely fine. But the main thing is to say, okay, if we were going to do, you know, target three opportunities for you, what would they be? Like, give me your, you know, your, your moonshot around public relations, you know, what are the three articles or three publications you'd like to be in, and then sort of work on that story. And I find that when you start to work on something that's of interest to them, um, they will then sort of realize the opportunities that exist and sort of use as as an entryway to doing other other cool things. And hopefully get them excited about it. Exactly. Too. That's that's the thing is you have to get them excited and on board and, you know, but but there are there's definitely you know people that don't want to do it and so they'll get somebody else in the C suite. There's bound to be at least one person in the C suite that's willing to do something. Mm-hmm. You know um, the other thing I would say is that if you commit to doing um, to doing PR, make sure that when you've got interviews scheduled, treat media for example the same way that you would a customer. You wouldn't bail on a customer meeting ten minutes before the meeting scheduled to take place. Don't do that for media either. You know, and if you, for example, would leave an important meeting to go speak to a customer, there are times where leaving an important meeting to speak to a journalist is just as important. For for any companies that are kind of pre-launch, so they don't have a product or anything yet, there's um, a lot of like sign-up pages and that, that happen and like creating kind of a squeeze page to get everyone interested pre-launch before I actually have a product what's the best way to generate buzz and get people excited about what I'm doing I find that most of those tend to be on the consumer side as opposed to the b2b side but I would say you know 
um, social media is definitely sort of one of the best ways to go out there and do that or to create some kind of offer um, that people will actually get in return for signing up. Um, but really, if you have a product, a service, an offering that is going to be of interest to people, getting people to sign up is not going to be difficult. You have to have your messages in place, know how you want to actually communicate to them, and then go through the channels where those particular targets are going to be. So, for example, if, you know, if they're going to be using LinkedIn, for example, um, then that's where you need to promote it. If they're going to be watching videos and it's maybe, you know, kids, then do it that way. But the other thing that you can do is actually, even before you have something, start to do a little bit of thought leadership around the ideas that you have. You know, what is, what's the vision that you actually have for what you're building? And write, you know, write op-eds or contribute articles that talk about the vision and the ideas that you have and get them published with along with a link that goes to your landing page. Um, and again, the whole idea is to really sort of get people interested in the vision. And then once you start to do that, you know, it will definitely help to bring people. But I, I truly believe that when you're creating a product or a service or any kind of offering that's of interest to people, um, you know, attracting the right audience is not going to be a problem. I think those that struggle are, are generally those that have created something that maybe is in a sort of a real niche solving, you know, uh, a very tiny problem that very few care about. So, you know, that's, that's hard to say, but it's generally mostly on the consumer side that people would be doing that. And um, for the B2B perspective, um, since you have uh, people working in the U.S. versus Canada, what is kind of the comparison spot for companies and their PR? Like, are, are people in the U.S., are companies in the U.S. more aware that they need PR versus Canada, or is it pretty balanced? I would say it's pretty balanced. I think what's not balanced, though, is you often get a lot of Canadian companies that say, I need a PR agency. So the need is the same in terms of wanting to do PR and, and understanding. Not everyone understands sort of what PR is and, and what it entails, but often they think kind of big shiny thing. That means a US PR agency. And so, yes, there's a lot of agencies here in Canada that focus only on the Canadian market. Uh, we happen to be one of the few that actually work North America wide and we're part of a, a global network that actually gives our clients access to 27 agencies, 27 countries around the world. So um, really sort of expanding their reach. But I think, I think there's no real difference between the US and Canada in seeing the value. I do, however, think Canadians seem to think that the Americans are way better at targeting coverage and, and opportunities in the US market. And we've had a lot of situations where we work with a company, they say, we're going to go to a US agency, and ultimately they end up coming back to us because they realize that they weren't getting more, they're paying a lot more, but not necessarily getting more for their money. Well, how would you say would be the best way uh, for somebody to become a thought leader in their industry? I think firstly, you have to have the ideas around what, what are the different leadership topics that you want to focus on, um, you know, basically put them together, you know, identify what the key themes are, and then match those themes by saying, okay, here's the different publications that would be interested, for example, in those themes. Here's the different events um, where the audiences would be interested in hearing me speak on those particular events and build a, a pretty inclusive program that looks at the array of opportunities that are out there. Let them actually go out and, you know, develop story ideas and pitch to actually get contributed articles written. A lot of the time, in fact, when we're working with companies, before they have a market-ready product, 
thought leadership is a big part of what we do. And so contributed articles, especially when you're dealing with industry verticals, you know, like education or um, education in particular, I'd say marketing, there's a lot of um, AI. Those are a lot of the different areas where uh, they're definitely open to contributed articles. You know, a lot of the publications don't necessarily have huge staff. And so they're open to that. And I would say definitely getting out there, you know, speaking at events, um, publishing, and even sort of, for example, taking advantage of your own LinkedIn page. You know, LinkedIn publishers, fantastic. You've got ideas, share thoughts. Don't wait for, you know, the opportunity to secure an article and have somebody else print it. You've got an idea in your head, share it. Yeah. And um, before we go into our fun questions that I call them, though, (laughs) I think I should rename them. How did you learn to craft your writing for all sorts of different publications? So it's very interesting. Um, You know, there was a long time ago, very early on in my career, where I would write something and and the people that I reported to would rewrite everything. And I was like, oh, my God, I actually cannot actually write, you know. And I definitely find that over the years you just really hone your craft around writing. Um, But the one thing that's interesting is I think that there's two different kinds of writers. There's actually probably three. There's a marketing writer, which I don't believe I am. There's a public relations writer where it's more about sort of fact, communication, uh, communicating, making sure you're getting the, your message across. And then I also think that there's the journalist. So if you kind of look at sort of the different types of, of writers, it's very interesting. So, for example, when we have a client that's looking for an article to be written uh, in a mainstream publication, we would probably have uh, one of our freelance journalists on our team actually write the article because they're business writers they kind of look at things from a journalist perspective what's the narrative that they want to tell um, when it comes to the marketing writer it's all about sort of being able to really create something that attracts inspires just people want to read and just is all about marketing and brand awareness and promoting a product and then on the PR side it's much more factual you know we have a lot of times for example when we'll write a, a press release and um We'll share a press release draft with the client and the client changes their quote to say, we're excited to be partnering with. I just, my eyes roll at that because when you kind of think of from public relations and who the, the audience is, you have to make sure that the words match the audience. And so, um, you know, when a reporter sees I'm excited in a press release, they're just going to roll their eyes, mm-hmm. you know, so you have to just make sure. And I, and I think definitely over the years, you get to become a better writer. But I think most people in public relations tend to be great writers, mm-hmm. you know, but they tend to be great PR writers. Not everybody is good. Like I have somebody on my team who's a fantastic contributor article writer or a fantastic case study writer. We have journalists on our team that are great from a business story perspective, you know, and you have to know your strengths and your weaknesses. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Alrighty. So then what is um, something that you believe Toronto has that no other city does? I think what's kind of interesting, and I'm, I'm kind of make up that population, is the immigrants. I think, you know, I mean, I originally come from South Africa, having moved here 25 years ago. And I think it makes this the city just so interesting because you end up with so many different perspectives on um, how things are done on how things are said you know I still you know it's just you get these little communities that work together live together and get to kind of understand one another and I think it's so great so welcoming if you kind of think about 
being a being a uh, South African arriving new in this country and there's nobody else that you know, um, you kind of feel a little lost. Whereas having other immigrants around, you kind of feel like it's home. Cool. And uh, what's a place in Toronto that you recommend that everyone should visit? You know, I, I'm I'm really one about views, and so I'm you know I, I go with the the traditional uh, skyline of the CN Tower. You know, there's nothing I love more when I whether I go up the um, the building where the Globe and Mail is in, or you know some of the um, some of the office towers that house some of the lawyers. Um, they're just the views are fantastic, and so I think that if you can get a clear day, there is truly nothing better than kind of seeing the expanse of everything that's around you and sort of seeing everything that um, the city has to offer. So that's you know that's my one, and and people always ask for it anyway, but that's the one that I really love. It's all about the views. And um, what was your very first job? My very first job was actually working as a cashier in South Africa at a grocery store called Pick and Pay. And uh, I remember being able, this was long before scanners were in place. So it wasn't about scanning a barcode. It was around looking at prices, entering prices, that kind of thing. And so the one thing that really served me well is that it's being somebody that in my early school career, being able to type without looking, touch typing essentially, um, from a numbers perspective, it was just as good for me. So I was very comfortable doing that kind of thing. So I could actually go through and enter somebody's order and they'd be amazed at the end of it. So it was kind of fun, but but that was was my first job. Cool. Um, What would you say should be the very first steps for any entrepreneur thinking about starting a business? I would say sort of know, know what you want to achieve and know your differentiators. And I think if you can kind of marry those two things, I think, and then build a plan from there, I think that's important. But if you, you know, if you if you don't know sort of what, how, what you're offering that's different to anybody else, I think it's very hard to actually go out there and build a business around it because there are so many different businesses out there, so many competing businesses. You have to have a, a great value proposition and be able to offer something different. So I think sort of knowing what you want to achieve in your business, knowing what your differences are in terms of the value that you bring to the table and bringing those two together and building a plan around that, I would say is the, the key thing. That's a great, a great advice. And um, for someone who wants to be in PR, what is kind of the first steps they can take to achieve what you've achieved? I think people, firstly here in Canada especially, are very lucky. When I went to, um, when I graduated high school and I wanted to study public relations, in South Africa there wasn't actually a degree program focused on public relations. Very different here in Canada. There's really great schools. There's there's Humber, there's Seneca, there's a lot of really good programs. I would say find the program that works for you, um, that offers the, you know, the kind of courses that you're looking for. But public relations, I think in particular, is such a practical field to work in. So I would say um, find a great program and, and find your passion. So for example, for me, it was technology. So I wanted to find my first role in a company that was focused on technology. If you're interested in makeup, find a job doing public relations for a company that sells makeup and kind of get into sort of those industries. I think a lot of time people think, okay, public relations, I have to stick to, you know, one particular vertical. Um, I think start off with where your passion is. Mm-hmm. Awesome. It was really great advice for everyone listening. So thank you so much. 
Thank you for having me. It was great. A lot of fun. Yeah, it's, it's so much fun. Thank you for answering all of our questions. And, uh, and yeah, it was a lot of really actionable uh, things that people can actually do and get something, get benefit out of. So thank you. We wanted to thank you so much for coming in. We had such a great time interviewing you for Floater Founder. And thank you so much to our listeners. We are so excited to share more founder stories with you. Until, Until next time. time.